0: Hi, I'm Maeve Doyle, a host of A Private View, and this is a series about great women of the art world, the advocates for the art world who make things happen, the people who run galleries, who build collections, who work in job placements. Today's guest is Beth Greenacre, She's the woman who curated David Bowie's collection. She was a gallery owner, an art student, graduated from the courthold, has stories uh, second to none from London from the 90s until now. Part of our series, Great Women of the Art World. Have a listen to Beth Greenacre. Her stories are amazing. Beth Greenacre, hello. Hi. How have you been in this first few weeks of January? I'm
1: glad that it's the end of January. has to be said. <laughs> I know.
0: It's all a little bit shocking after Christmas, isn't it?
1: Well, you know, I love the, new, the idea of a new year and I love the idea of coming back to work after a break. Um, but January is always a tough month, so I'm glad that, you know, and today's quite a significant day for us, let's be honest, in terms of Brexit. So let's just move on to February. <laughs> oh, we could
0: spend a whole week on that let's conversation. Not. <laughs> So your your career in the art world, are you of art school? Did you come to it that way? How did you end up working in the art world? And, and what was your first job and how do you define yourself?
1: I think I've adapted quite... Significantly, too, that sort of, within the twenty-five years, I think it's twenty-five years since I graduated. <laughs> um, but
0: I get that—that
1: that means it was nineteen ninety-five. It was nineteen. It was ni- Yes, it was around that period. Now I went At- to the Courthold in ninety-four, so I graduated in ninety-seven.
0: And it doesn't seem that long ago, and yet when you think about it, that was twenty-five years yeah, ago. I
1: know. I think time has collapsed for me, if I'm honest. Um, you know, and the London art world was a very different place at that point. The YBAs were doing their thing, which was super, super exciting. But I had come from the Courtauld, which was quite stuffy, um, but brilliant. I mean, I'm a huge champion of the Courtauld. It's an amazing education. And in fact, um, my year group was really great. We, had, we, act, we engaged a lot of those YBAs. So one of my first actual jobs was working for free, of course, as one does in the art world. Oh, always, In always. the 90s, it was another, you know, we were in the middle of a recession Um, and I went and worked for Gavin Turk. So it's super exciting. He was working on his South London show, and I really threw myself into that sort of critical landscape. Um, And Shortly after that, so that would have been 97, as I say, by 99 I had met David Bowie, and that was kind of... You know, I was in my early 20s. I was a kid.
0: You can't just slip that in. (laughs) We need more. First of all, it's astonishing. I mean, Gavin Turk is a public person. He's out a lot. I understand how you would have met him, how that would have worked. How did you meet David Bowie? I haven't gone to an event and seen Bowie standing there, and I've been going to events forever.
1: No. So how was, did you meet him? It was one of those wonderful pieces of luck. You know, I think there's moments in all of our careers, or we should all acknowledge moments in our careers when we go, wow, that was lucky. And the impact, you know, it was, it was the biggest moment, really, yeah. in, in my um, trajectory, I guess. And I met him via somebody who was already working with him, the brilliant Kate Shatavian. Um, They had a relationship. I'd met her via a friend in the auction houses. And we started working together. Um, And Kate and I started working together in 1999. She left the UK around 2000, 2001, if I recall. And I sort of took over the reins, as it were. So I worked with David for up until his death in 2016. So... As you know, he had a fantastic collection. And when he died in 2016, the estate decided that they would sell some of the collection. So I managed and oversaw that sale at Sotheby's, which was hugely successful. And Uh, what was unique about that particular
0: sale? Aside from it was David Bowie's, but I'm referring to the hour's. Hour- twenty four oh, hour access <laughs> to Sotheby's Sotheby's had never so seen D- anything <laughs>
1: like it. Bond had
0: Street done. had never seen anything like it. I know,
1: it was phenomenal. Was that your
0: idea to keep it open twenty four hours? We did
1: a lot of brainstorming around it. And they and Sotheby's did a number of firsts actually when it came to the marketing and the present presenting of the um auctions. I don't think I don't think they'd ever done anything like that before. But we had to because there were so many people who wanted to see the collection but also understand David because through his collection you understood him. You understood his personality, you understood his ambitions, his drives, his passions, you know, what really motivated him. And also he used his collection to position himself in the world, to understand his history, his you know, his background. Um, and those artists really resonated with him for that reason. So it was a really personal way to understand David in a way that most people had never experienced before.
0: Although all the, this is such a beautiful conversation because all the hairs are, I'm showing you my arm because oh. suddenly when you were saying that, it was his way of understanding who he was and, and for the world to understand him. And if you saw how eclectic this part of his collection was, mm-hmm. it would have blown your mind And and... He's known as someone who supports the arts. There's stories that I've heard. I'm going to tell you the stories I've heard about the way he collects. And then you tell me what's right and what's not. I've heard that he collected every day. Every day he would buy some art. That he loved outsider art. That uh, when he sort of changed his life and and was approaching a more mature stage, art was his addiction. Mm Now, that would probably just be a journalist writing something that was catchy and getting people's eye because it's not an addiction. It's something you, you celebrate and, and respect and contribute to. Uh, there's a story he had a relationship with Bernard Jacobson, a tight relationship with Bernard Jacobson. Mm-hmm. Bernard Jacobson is legendary for not being a big fan of the YBA, so there's a conflict there. So take it away. What's right, what's wrong about what I've heard?
1: Well, I mean, I think David collected pretty much as soon as he could. But he very famously said the only thing he ever wanted to collect was art. Having said that, he had the most astounding library of art books. And he collected, he collected ideas, he was constantly collecting ideas and experiences and friendships and relationships. So I think he had a collector's brain and mentality. Was he collecting art every day? There were periods where he would really focus. Because when he dug deep, he dug really, really deep. Um, and he wanted to have relationships with the artists, so he made friends with a lot of the artists. You know, he and Tracy Emin were friends. He and Damien Hurst famously made spin paintings together. Um, Gold, Goldie was saying, like, he was quoting things from their time together and how he'd given him advice in his career. Oh, his, I mean, the generosity of spirit was phenomenal. He would always support artists, young artists. And by that I mean fine artists, but also musicians who very, very famously supported a number of great bands and musicians very early in their career. What was his relationship like with you? I mean, what were the guidelines you were given? How,
0: how did he... 'Cause one would ask the question, why David Bowie, did he need an art advisor? Not really.
1: <laughs>
0: but he So that's he beautiful he as well. You know,
1: he 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 was his collection was motivated by him and his interests and and by his reading.
0: So what was your job?
1: Well, by the time I came on board, you know, a lot of the collection was in place. We worked on a lot of projects with the collection, getting it out there, getting it seen, filling in a few holes here and there. Um But I would often facilitate loans because the artists that David was collecting were famously unfashionable. Modern British was not cool at that point. So name a few just
0: to refresh our memories. So
1: Some of the key works from that modern British period um, in the collection would be Lanyon. I was a huge fan of Lanyon, who in my mind changed the trajectory of British landscape painting. But today is kind of seen as rather parochial. I mean... Um, but David and that's was, funny,
0: you wouldn't think of that. You'd think of David being like the Hearst cat. Like.
1: Yeah, but modern British was really what motivated him. St. Ives in particular, so the St. Ives School, so he would travel to St. Ives, he'd walk the cliffs, You know, he'd really put himself in the shoes of these artists to better understand how they, what motivated them, what, what made them click. Um, so it's, I think the St. Ives School were really key, a cornerstone for the collection.
0: He was post-war. He always seems contemporary, but David Bowie was post-war. No, it
1: was. Yeah. And, you know, and that's positioning himself in that moment in history. That was his immediate, you know, that's that was the background of his sort of entry into the world.
0: Clearly, we could have shows just about David Bowie, but I really want to talk about <laughs> what you do as, as well, because I think dealing with art collectors, uh, David Bowie is one we all know, and that's why the spotlights on him because most people can relate to him but when we deal with collectors they may not all be public figures but they do have intense personalities so working as someone who works closely with not only artists which have their own unique personality traits but collectors who are looking for a purpose in collecting artists they're looking and asking for something that reflects them that isn't about words
1: Mm. I tend to work with collectors on a long-term basis. We always talk about the journey <laughs> because I think it is a journey collecting. I think you learn about yourself, you learn about your position in the world as you're collecting, as you're looking more, as you're digging deeper. So the collectors that I work with, I tend to have worked with for a very long time, and they're friends, and we're you know we're riffing off each other, we're learning from each other the whole time as well. We look. So I'm I'm just starting a new relationship with um, a client. Um, and all we're doing is looking and talking. But, you know, we, we stomp around Mayfair, we stomp around the East End, we look, we talk, we just generate ideas. And through doing so, I get to better understand their motivations, you know, what what their ambitions are, what their dreams are, what what interests them in life, in the w- wider world. And then the collection ultimately ends up reflecting reflecting that, I think. So it's a really interesting, personal, intimate process, I think. But you you hit on something that
0: is sticking with me. The, there isn't time for people to talk anymore, and if you're seen as someone who talks, you can kind of get a bad reputation. Whereas talking is a way of connecting mm. and sharing ideas and springboarding ideas. And have you noticed that people are now there's no time for anyone
1: to talk? Oh, good. The Instagram. World, I mean, and I love it because it's visual. It's brilliant, you know. And I spend my day, you know, I I will post frequently, and it's it's a great way to share. You know, it's a great sharing economy, Um, but you do need you need you need that haptic experience with art, don't you? And you need to, you can't just have a sort of hashtag to explain a complex image or sculpture or installation or experience. Uh, what's your earliest memory of the
0: art world? Uh, what led you to start collecting or wanting to work in the art world?
1: You know, my, earliest, my earliest experiences go back to childhood. So I was brought up in the northwest of England in a very suburban, leafy Cheshire, which is very safe, very genteel, but luckily was on the doorstep of Manchester and Liverpool, which were, you know, they, they were my escapes. So that's where I would escape to from from the Rolling Hills, um, and I had incredibly generous parents who really wanted to um, engage my... Anything, anything that excited me. So they'd take me to Manchester, to the City Museum, and to the Whitworth, and we'd go to, to Liverpool when that opened. And, of course, Manchester is this sort of grey, red-brick Victorian... Um, always reigning city and the collections there were famously pre-Raphaelite and I hate pre-Raphaelite paintings for it I think however the Whitworth has two um no, the Whitworth and Manchester City had two amazing um Freud paintings one was Girl in a Beret and I remember as a young girl looking up at it and looking into her eyes and just it really resonating um and it was really really impactful, um, and. I still every time I see that painting it kind of brings goosebumps to my to my skin and then I also remember my parents me really begging can we go to take Liverpool can we go to take Liverpool and we went and we saw Gormley's Field so that would have been about that would have been the early 90s I guess maybe even earlier Um, that and showing at the same time with Stanley Spencer do you know that painting by Stanley Spencer of Patricia Pierce. The one where she is lying on the bed naked. Her body is painted as if it's meat. And you see the back of his head where her pubic region is. And it's disturbing. And And he had no
0: access to that region. (laughs) (laughs) The stories were amazing. But
1: it's quite a painting. I remember again, young girl looking at that. You know, me being sort of where Spencer's head would have been. And incredibly, incredibly pa- impactful. So I guess those were two paintings, and Gormley's Field, of course, um, that re- I, I just remember really, really clearly. I mean, I can't
0: imagine from where you said you grew up and you were born that you knew there was a job like the job you have today. Did anyone know there was that kind of job?
1: No, I don't know. So uh, there's an... Ac- certainly not within sort of British education, state education at that point in the... In, the his, in our history. No. So how
0: do we go forward? What do you decide to study in school? Why didn't you decide to be an artist? as an uh, artist? Maybe I'm a failed artist. Well, aren't we all?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I thought I did want to be an artist and I went off and I did my foundation course um, and I got a place at Goldsmiths. Um, but I also got a place at the Courtauld. And I knew in the in, you know, deep in my heart that actually It was that kind of academic learning that I was really striving for. So off I went to the Courtauld. And that's not a failure. And that's not a failure. No. No, No, I wouldn't debate. I would make a terrible Mm. artist.
0: I mean, I was speaking earlier about Betty Parsons being uh, born today and like this day in history. And one thing that's true is that artists work in the studio. It's very different now that there's Instagram. But the people around the artists were so important to. The artists getting ahead, the critics like Clement Greenberg, the dealers like Betty Parsons, the people like you who put the art in front of important collectors, the collectors, so no failure. I think you just found your <laughs> strength, and it's a different way of of being an artist in the art world. An advocate, an art advocate.
1: I mean, It's really important for me to mentor artists if I can and to support artists, young artists. I did actually have my own gallery for close to 15 years and we worked with young and emerging artists um, and I still maintain those relationships they are really you know most of my friend, a lot of my friends are artists so
0: um. I've kept you here for an awfully long time and I promise I will let you go but not before you tell me what you think will change in the art world in 2020 also let people know where they can see you on Instagram or if they want to email you sure
1: um, I think we're going to see less art fairs
0: Hallelujah. I think. There's 300 now, aren't there?
1: Hopefully we'll see more sort of haptic experiences when it comes to engagement with art. Let's hope that we continue to see our gender rebalancing, which, you know, we've got a long way to go, but great moves are being made. Um, And there's some incredible shows coming up in London alone of um, female artists.
0: Where can people reach you?
1: Um, on Instagram, um yeah, Beth to Instagram, Greenacre underscore London.
0: Thank you, Beth Greenacre. Please come again. I will do. Thank you I'm for ha- having me. You've been listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. I'm a curator for Paddle 8. I'm also BBC Radio London art critic. Follow me on Instagram at mavedoyle_art. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.